Welcome back. We have, uh, we have, we have had a great day yesterday. I think that uh, all of you who are here know that, and I can assure you that we have uh, more good stuff to come, a lot more very good stuff to come. Emily Bell, uh, who is going to be leading the conversation and will introduce uh, our, our, her partner here in just a moment, is someone who came to the Shorenstein Center a while back as a brown bag lunch person, and I tried very hard to uh, enlist her. Uh, but Nick Lemon at Columbia had beaten me to the punch, uh, and she is now the director of the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia. She had been, before Columbia, the director of digital content for the Guardian's uh, new media, uh, new and new media and editor in chief, Guardian Unlimited. She is one of the people who has been on the forefront of what has been happening in journalism and technology uh, and is one of the people who is also not just uh, knowledgeable but has uh, sort of a penetrating mind that goes to the heart of things uh, and a sense of humor as well, which I have found is uh, absolutely essential in these, in these days. Emily, uh, just a moment ago, paid this conference a great compliment. I hope you won't mind if I say this, Emily. Okay, go ahead. Uh, she said, uh, you know, you did, had a great, con you know, it was wonderful yesterday. It really was, and so forth and so on. And she said, in fact, I was just the teeniest bit envious. <laughs> it was just a little too good. <laughs> so, thank you, Emily. Uh, so, I hope that you will now make it even better. Uh, Emily, uh, is going to be introducing our uh, distinguished guest from MIT. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Alex. Yes, uh, so <coughs> if this is not quite as sparkling as the um, sessions yesterday, it's because I'm deliberately sabotaging, <laughs> not because I'm hopelessly inept. Um, I'm utterly thrilled to be talking to him. In fact, when a Alex contacted me a long time ago and said, who would you like to um, interview, uh, I actually picked uh, Joey Ito here, who at the time had just been made director of the MIT Media Lab, but he's somebody whose work and <coughs> thoughts and innovations uh, as a journalist, not only I followed for a long time, but also the things that he was responsible for and involved in, like uh, Creative Commons, um, Global Voices, uh, Six Apart, uh, Twitter, etc., were all technologies, platforms, and ideas that at some point in my career, I found myself using or, or, or using the, the, the thinking about. So um, as I joined Columbia a year ago and then saw somebody that I greatly professionally admired uh, joining another academic institution, I was going to say Ivory Towers, but I'm sure that whatever the MIT Media Lab is made out of, it can't be ivory, and it's probably not a tower. Um, so I'm thrilled that he's here today. Uh, and I wanted to ask him... Why not? You, you, you're someone who's had a very geographically and diverse career. You're an entrepreneur and an investor, as well as somebody who's been an activist. You've also been a club DJ. What I really want to ask you is what's on your set. I won't do that till later. Um, why, why, why here? Why now? When I first heard about the opportunity, I had no idea. I, I, I have a brother-in-law who graduated from there, and I have a lot of friends from the media lab, but I had no idea. But I'm one of those people who, who would never say no without learning a little bit more about it. So I actually came <coughs> to the Media Lab 
and it was an incredible like speed dating thing where every 15 minutes I was meeting another faculty member or a group of students and after two days of just one person after another asking me all these questions I realized that this was exactly where I wanted to be and um, and I think that we they felt was a mutual thing and I think the reason <clears throat> so I, I don't think I would fit in any other institution like this anywhere and the reason is my main problem, which I've been trying to wrangle into a strength, is that I'm interested in everything, and I'm very bad at focusing. And the way that I've sort of designed my life is to focus on the value I bring by connecting things that typically don't connect to each other, and to try to turn this inability to focus into something that, 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 that generates value. It turns out at the Media Lab, there is somebody more interested and better at every single thing that I'm interested in so far. And it's the only place in the world that I can be interested in everything and have it actually be my job. And so, and, 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 and then have people turn those interests into more than, so in, you know, as a venture capitalist, you get to invest in a lot of companies. I tried various different jobs that allow you to do a bunch of things at the same time. But the Media Lab is, is in a way, creates impact in, in so many more ways. So, so to me, it's, it's, it's really the only place I can imagine right now. It's the best job in the world. So you, 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 uh, you're not massive, you, you haven't traditionally been a, a huge fan of formal education at a higher level. I mean, it's mm -hmm. often said in biographies that you, you tried a couple of university courses that didn't quite fit. You're not a traditional academic. Um, what, <coughs> what do you think about how institutions like uh, the Media Lab uh, or possibly institutions like... Columbia, uh, Harvard, can, what, what can they do? How can they change to participate in this world that you're describing now? Do they need to change? Is everything perfect? Yeah. And I assume I should be blunt. I, <laughs> the blunter, the better. So, so the, the Media Lab is as untraditional and as informal as you can get, probably, as a master's and PhD program in an in a institution like MIT. The, the focus is really on learning. And what I didn't really feel in the institutions that I went to, they were great institutions, but a lot of the focus was on graduating and on the degree and on the hours sitting in chairs and taking classes. And, and if you were a good long-term planner, like my sister is a very good long-term planner, so she has two PhDs, magna cum laude, Harvard, Stanford, all these. So it's not, it's not that we, it's an, it wasn't an environmental thing, mm -hmm. clearly. But she was able to sit in the chair when she was in first grade and say, I'm going to be that person 30 years from now. In order to do this, I've got to do this. So she could plan her life. I just was, couldn't, I was too scattered to do that. So if it didn't really make sense for me for tomorrow, I couldn't do it. It turns out there are a lot of people probably that have this sort of disability, which is the in, you know, interest-driven learning. The Media Lab is all about how do you learn in an environment that's very unstructured when you have people who just want to build stuff and don't sit around thinking about what they want to be 10 years from now. They sort of have a general trajectory, but they learn through just tinkering and thinking and sort of it's a serendipity-oriented kind of view on life. And I think actually more people are probably better at that kind of learning than formal learning. And so formal learning, I think, is great for people who can plan their life and put together this program. But, but most kids, especially when they're small, can't do that. So, so I think, in a way, the Media Lab and this informal learning that we do there, um, and, and, and some of my faculty will disagree because some of them are more academic than others, but, but I think we're designing 
a different way to learn, and I think there's a lot of variations in between strictly formal and in, in completely informal, and different institutions have those different shades of gray, but I think the Media Lab is probably the, I don't know, the most informal yet rigorous, and so, and, 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 and it still has a lot of innovation that we can do, so I'm tr trying to position the Media Lab as the future of learning in a certain category, um, and so I'm hoping to, well, so if, I, if I went there, I would have graduated. Isn't it? If you went there, you would have graduated. That's a great endorsement. Um, uh, and it, 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 when you say sort of the future of learning in that kind of, um, in that kind of environment, one of the things that's been striking to me about the conversation over the past, uh, yesterday really, was about, uh, and something that sort of slightly obsessed me when I was a, a working journalist at The Guardian, was how um, difficult it was for the institutions of journalism, and maybe also we're talking about politics as well, the institutions of politics, to keep up with the kind of iterative thinking and behaviours uh, that were going on in the, in, in the software industry where you uh, <laughs> led things which were really sort of transformative. Um, how, do we, how do we change that? You know, what's your kind of advice? To be the external insultant to us, and how, 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 would, how should we approach that? So I, th I think there are at least two things. Um, the first one, um, which is the less insulting one is um, <laughs> that um, right now we have the ability to change our tools. And so if you look at the early blog software, they were all people who wanted to write, write text and publish and express, but also knew how to write software. So there were these p people who were kind of amateur journalist type people who knew how to write software. So instead of some big company creating a content management system for some big institution that hires a bunch of writers. This was a bunch of writers writing code. And so you came up with these very lightweight, very well-designed platforms that became blogs. The thing right now is that a lot of the technology that we use, your, your mobile phone, your, your, your software, they're black boxes. So you assume that they can't be changed. If they're going to be changed, they're going to be changed by some company in Redmond and the only way you influence that behavior is by buying more or less of one thing or another. You know, they don't, you can't tell them what to do. And even if you could tell them what to do, and this is what we find at the Media Lab, you, you have to get the designer and the technology person working together. And, and that's when the real innovation happens. And as long as it's a black box being tossed over to you and your ideas being tossed back, that's never going to work in terms of designing the tool. So, so the fundamental problem I find, whether it's, and it's two pieces, it's the technology tool and it's also the institution business tool. The typical journalist doesn't have the skill to actually tinker with those two tools. Right? So, so that, that's you know, big problem number one. Um, and then the other problem that we find, I think, if you look at Silicon Valley, is that, um, and you know, th there's a bunch of books around this too, but it's, it was very far away from large institutions. And, it was, and David Weinberger uses the phrase, small pieces loosely joined. Um, and it was really all of the great innovations around the internet are really teams of two or three people, whether it's Twitter or the web the, you know, or the browser, everything. And you can't really innovate very quickly and iterate when you have a large institution. And in fact, even if you're a small institution, if you depend on a large institution for anything, you get held back. And that's why we've had this difficulty on the West Coast, is there's so, you're surrounded by these large institutions and you somehow think that you need to ask permission or that you care what they think. Whereas on the West Coast, you just do it. And so, so that, that part is the, 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 the speed part. 
I do think that there is an opportunity because now you have all these citizen journalists creating tools and tinkering and doing all these things, and then you can kind of look at those and see what your relationship to that is and what your um, and, and you maybe can you know in, internalize some of this stuff. I mean, I, we just had um, Wada Kanfar from Al the former director general of Al Jazeera, and if you talk to him, his relationship with citizen media is fascinating, and, and they learn a lot from that. So I think that one of the solutions is to, to sort of give up on trying to do a lot of the, inter, you know, the innovation internally, but to work with these outside folks. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because um, uh, I was hoping that we would talk a lot about networks, which is um, something which, again, you know, this, this is really what we're talking about in terms of um, how we see journalism and also kind of politics and how they relate develop, developing. We can see it um, outside South Station and uh, up uh, in Zuccotti Park at the moment. Um, but I was, it, when, you, when you join a network, do you, do you automatically have to lose the kind of control that it seems to me? I mean, having worked in a, having worked in a newsroom, the, the one thing is control. This is something that obsesses journalists, uh, and we've got better at understanding how to give it up, but it doesn't feel like we're fully there yet. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I think it's, it's interesting because journalists always write about how control is overrated and the fall of the, you know, the Soviet Empire and all this stuff. I mean, there, is really very f there are very few cases now where it helps to have control in a complex environment, you know, and, and those who have the image that they have control are the ones who lose the most when it turns out that everything good and everything bad in the world is, was unpredicted and unplanned. And so I think planning is overrated. I think that um, the minute you start planning, you start to think you know what's going on, and then you lose sight of everything else going around you. And, and, and so, again, I, I, I think of um, I, I, one of the words I use to describe the media lab is it's a serendipity engine. Mm -hmm. And it's really about trying to see what's around you, being agile, you know, and then to use John Slee Brown's words, power of pull, pulling the resources in as you need them, and, and moving forward based on a trajectory or a compass rather than a map. And I think that the control people are the people who like maps and plans, mm -hmm. um, but they don't, they don't work in, in the rest of the world. Why would they work in journalism? You know? and, and, so, so, and in the same way, I think that... Uh, um, so so, so, so I, think, I think control is overrated. I think when, when you come from the Internet, building pieces of the internet, you realize that everything successful on the inter internet, whether it's the browser, any part of anything, it was exciting mainly when it was used um, in a way that the original designers didn't anticipate. Right. Right. And so if, if you flip that around, it's again, it's about, well, if you were to control it. So, so YouTube, when it started, was a dating site with video. Yeah. So if they, no, you're supposed to use it as a dating site for video, it would never have become the yep. journalist tool that it is now. It was their ability to say, well, no, you guys use yep. it for that. Okay, we'll pivot this way. We'll pivot. You know, PayPal was a mobile app. You know? And so all of these things were only able to go because the designers and the people who ran this said, well, let's see what happens to it. You know? and, and that's kind of the philosophy of the Internet. So this letting go of the idea that there's a canonical version, that nothing changes, that yeah. once it's done, it's perfect, is something which... And, and, and it's not to say that you give up quality, mm -hmm. right? So if you have a newsroom, you can still have a very um, rigorous newsroom. But the, I think, and, and maybe I'm misinterpreting your word control, but I think it's important to have high quality. Mm -hmm. But I think it's always important to be questioning yourself constantly. And, and journalists do this as a practice. But I think when you institutionalize, it starts to look like, oh, we want to find the expert. 
And, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing. I was talking to somebody from the CIA about this. And so if you look at somebody like the CIA or anyone, you know, they, they can't actually go to people and ask somebody a question and say, I'm from the CIA, I can ask you a question. So they tend to look for the one expert and they try to find the, 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 the leading expert in the world and ask that one person. Whereas the internet version of truth is you post it on Usenet or Slashdot, and if it survives, <laughs> it's probably true because you have a million people who tried to tear that down and it survived. And this is, I mean, it's the obvious wisdom of the crowds thing, but it's actually quite almost like a religious difference, you know, in... in no, completely. And uh, do the CIA um, accept now that they've been beaten by the internet, or are they still sourcing their experts I, I in the same way? I don't speak on behalf of the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then, I, just on this sort of newsroom point, which you're absolutely right, which is um, that uh, control and quality are sort of are fitted together. It's almost like if we lose control, we lose quality, mm -hmm. etc. Um, and we heard a lot yesterday from people saying this is just simply not true. You know, multi-perspectival filtering, um, uh, the way that you kind of interact with a broader network actually increases quality, timeliness increases quality, all the things that you thought would, would degrade it. If you were... Um, uh, I know you're not a great one for planning, but if you were, if you were planning a sort of a, a newsroom of the future, as I come to you and say, look, look, you know, everything we do, our systems are all organized around kind of structures of the past. Let's throw those away. What, what would you, how would you organize your newsroom of the future? It would be very decentralized. Um, it would be very, so I'm going to answer this in a slightly different way, which is if you look at in, the ja in Japan, mm -hmm. every single disaster that's occurred where there was a planned, there was a committee already, or there's a pro, where there was a protocol failed. So the Kobe earthquake, this recent disaster, because suddenly the rules kick in, they say, okay, this is happening. The, the one that was really, really good was, the response was good, was the Peru hostage incident, because it turns out they didn't have a plan. So what the prime minister did is he said, okay, who do I know? And they called their friends, and they called their friends, and they put together an ad hoc committee, which turned out to be the best people in Japan on it. And they were very quick at making decisions, and they responded very well. And the more you plan it in Japan, it becomes political and institutional, and, and then it just starts to, and it, it ages, but it doesn't change. And so for me, the newsroom of the future would be, you only pull the things that you need, again, back to John C. Brown's thing, as, as you go. So, so, so I, when, when the earthquake happened, I wanted Geiger counters, and I have my friend here, Peter, who was a hardware hacker, and he was trying to build Geiger counters, and I asked my friend John Vasconcelos, and he knew the guy who did the Three Mile Island um, instruments, and, and we got the father of the Japanese internet, and then Ray Ozzy said he was interested in the back end, and within days, we had all of the world's experts talking about how do we measure the data, how do we analyze the data, what do we think about the hardware, and then, like a few days later, actually, I was at Alberto's place in, in, in Miami on doing the night news, you know, uh, thing. And then I said, "Hey, Alberto, you got to fund this, you know." But but <laughs> the thing, <laughs> yes, he funded it. But but what what's, what was really amazing was that with I had no expertise in this. Within a day, I knew more than all of the media. Within a week, we were building Geiger counters, deploying them and we had a citizen's network. We now have 600,000 or 800,000 um, data points. It's the largest data set of, of, of radiation um, measurements now. But the, 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 and I think you know, some people that I told this is, oh, well, it's your political capital. It's, it's not true. It was actually this competition of ideas 
and all the different groups that were on the internet that were working on this all kind of came together. They, they talked to us, they merged with us. There are a few who, who kind of want to do their own thing and most of them happen to be in academic institutions. But, um, but what's interesting is all the sort of open people got together. And so what's interesting is these bits of interest in news on the internet tend to find each other if you're open enough. And so the key is if you say, okay, when this happens, this is the person I call all the time then you're not really being open to new sources. So that, so that, and, then the, and then one last thing is I, I would say is the ability to vet sources is also, you can use LinkedIn, you can ask your friends, you can post on Twitter. So looking for new sources per story is also, I think, a really important thing. And I think that a lot of newsrooms, you kind of get used to using these traditional um, sources of information. Yes, and, and, and again, that comes back to this idea, well, I trust my sources, you know, they trust mm -hmm. me. There's a kind of a, a, a process shift um, which needs to, to, to happen there to, to actually change it. Um, just on this sort of, uh, the, this idea, as you say, that, that of, of highly decentralized news and listening for activity in the network and finding new sources and incorporating those into, into how you tell stories. Uh, you know, one of the things that maybe sort of is worth pushing back a bit on, or, or, or I'd really like to hear your thoughts on it, as you were somebody who was uh, in at a very early stage with Twitter, which I personally believe to be, you know, the greatest journalistic tool, almost possibly since the printing press, even maybe better than the printing press, who knows? I hope Bill Keller's uh, watching the live stream, though somehow I doubt it. Um, but as we decentralize journalism, we're actually giving an awful lot of our um, conversations, a lot of breaking uh, and, and valuable, the first draft of history that journalism is very, very sort of uh, notorious for compiling, is being distributed onto platforms which are actually not, they're, they're open to us, but they're not very open corporately. You know, the more that we give to Facebook, the more that we distribute via Google <coughs> or Twitter or whatever, you know, how, how, how should we think about that? Because it sounds great, but you can, if, if you want to be skeptical about it, you can also say this is not actually an open system at all. This is a mm -hmm. highly, as Clay Shirky put it yesterday, this is a corporate system which tolerates free speech, journalism, etc. I think it's easier to do good design in closed systems. And so just about every kind of technology, you get the first version of it closed, and then eventually open overruns closed. So whether it's AOL, email, even computer networks, modems, they all, the cool ones started closed and then people realized, oh wait, we have to democratize it, let's open up. And the open guys aren't necessarily as good at design because it's kind of like designing by committee doesn't work, but you know, overthrow of governments work better when you have lots of people. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that a lot of these closed systems will eventually be overrun um, by open, the, the time scale is tricky. I mean, it was, it was just a funny side story. I was in Spain and we had a two hour conversation about this and somebody asked about Apple and I said, yeah, Apple will eventually be overrun by open. And then the, the journalist who was there, front page of El Pais said, Ito, Apple is dead. You know, and so that's, that's mainstream media for you, but anyway. Nuance that we like to bring to traditional reporting as, as represented on newspaper front pages that we've been um, famous for famous for centuries. But, but, but sorry about that joke. But to, but to get, I just, I just, I just, I just but to get back to the point, I, I do think that a lot of these things that we see right now in closed systems, it's it's, it's occurred over and over on the internet. I think eventually they'll become open. Um, it's just a matter of time. We're just testing a lot of new things in closed systems. I'm going to go to sort of over to questions in a minute. So if people have questions uh, as we have the 
the unusual American um, custom of lining up at the microphones. Uh, as I say, still a year from Britain, I still can't believe that we make you stand up to ask questions. But um, something, something I wanted to ask you um, specifically of, 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 of very sort of personal interest to me, which is that one of the things we're doing at Columbia now is we, we've introduced a dual degree um, in computer science and journalism. And there's this dialogue about, well, how much do journalists really need to know of the platforms and the technologies that they're working on? And is this just an interim period? Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I kind of think that all the things that we did really well at The Guardian, we did because somebody who knew a huge amount more about technology than me had a really great idea for doing it. What, mm -hmm. what do you think about the skill sets of, of journalists and how they might need to shift a bit in the future? So, so going back to the tool thing, I think that uh, either, well, in, I think in many cases it may be easier to teach the technology people to become journalists, and maybe they don't become the best journalists, but they learn journalism enough so that they can mess with the tools. And you know, I, I started out my life also as a journalist, even though I was more interested in technology, and I pivoted to technology once the technology became a, a better. And I was never a great journalist, but I knew enough about it so I could play with the tools. Um, so I do, but, but that, for the tool building part, you need somehow to either train technology people to be journalists or the other way around. I think it's easier to train technology people. Um, but then at uh, another level, I think that if you think about the importance of data in um, reporting, we need people who understand data and programming in the newsroom somewhere. And they have to know enough journalism to be able to do it because you have all these open government efforts. But unless you can read the data, they're, they're useless. And then the, conversely, I see all of these completely, well, more than, by the way, more than just computer science, journalists have to learn math. You know, statistics completely fail in almost yeah. all. I mean, so, so, so there's a bunch of science, math, and computers that have to be in the, in, in the literacy of the newsroom. And it's just like you had to learn how to type and use the word processor. This should just be something that everybody needs to be able to do. We had a, we had a, 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 a morning um, at Columbia in the J School uh, last um, semester uh, where um, I'd sort of hurriedly gathered together lots of different um, data experts to talk about exactly this, about how do we, how do we introduce this. And uh, uh, we had a, a fantastic presentation from um, a, a really uh, uh, great woman at the architecture school, Laura Kirgan, who does brilliant visualizations. And uh, one, of, uh, one of my colleagues from the J School said, uh, said, this is great, but we have, you know, when, when people come to, to journalism school, they do because they like to write and they like stories. And she, and she said, when they come to architecture school, they like buildings and drawing, but if they, don't, if they can't do the math, we don't let them in. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> it, it, though I'm not sure that I could have actually done the math myself, I was thinking about having that made up as a kind of a, a banner if you can't add out. Uh, Alex. I, I want to take a, um, a, a bit of a riff from what you just said about the, the, how it was in, you thought it was easier to teach journalism to people who really understood the technology. It seems to me that there is an increasingly uh, smaller and smaller and smaller group of people in the world who really, really understand these things, this powerful tool of digital technology and how it can be applied. And that one of the public policy issues that doesn't get discussed and certainly doesn't get covered very well by the media for policymakers or for citizens is the policy dimensions of the kinds of decisions that engineers are making in places like perhaps the MIT Media Lab and other places far less transparent than that.
And I wondered if you had thoughts about how, how journalism or in some fashion inquiring minds can make comprehensible to people who are citizens of the world and legislators and so forth the policy implications of some of the technological and engineering decisions that are being made that don't necessarily on their face look like policy decisions, but are profoundly policy decisions and are really outside the sphere or capability of what journalists almost of any kind can, uh, can, can, can deal with. Lessig, Lawrence Lessig wrote a book, I think his first really great book was called Code, and he talked about how software was like law and how the architecture was politics. And he talks about how students, software engineers, came up to him after reading the book and said, I don't want to be political. You know, but his thing was, well, what you're doing is political because it affects policy. And I think that part of it is educating um, the people who are creating these things so they understand policy. And this is, again, about being multidisciplinary. I, I think the technology bit, th there's another piece of it, which is I think that uh, unless you actually use the technology, it's very difficult to make policy decisions about it or even write about it. So, for instance, my friend who's the head of Al Jazeera Online, he started out as an engineer at Accenture, started building the network for Al Jazeera, but it turns out that he, he had the right kind of personality to become the editor-in-chief, but he knew the software enough so that he could build his own system and could understand what was going on in the world. Um, and that's what I mean that technology people can, some technology people can be great journalists because I think people who might have a journalistic type of mind or worldview, a lot of them who are curious jump into the tools, this is, I'm very much this way, I was very much a media person, but I realized when I saw the tools that these would have a tremendous impact on media. So the first thing I did was that I, it's, it's kind of like if you have, uh, if you're an artist and you, you start getting excited about paints when you're a child. I think a lot of people who are interested in policy and interested in, in journalism jump into technology because, exactly because they realize now that this is a very political thing. Um, not all technologists are political, but I guess my point is a lot of the people are technologists exactly because they realize that that's where the policy battles are going to be fought. And I think it's, it's the, the, and that's why these programs I think are really important is to scan all the technology people and say, who of you are doing what you're doing because you're interested in policy? If so, come here and let's talk. Because the, the, and, and in Japan and in the U.S., the biggest problem we, I find is that we have so many elderly legislatures who are cre creating policies around things like copyright and, and computers without ever really u having used one before. And it's this just kind of this intuitive understanding of what goes on. And so, I, so, so but, but my, 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 I guess it's a long-winded way of saying that I think within the community of technology people, it's not a large percentage, but you will find, you know, and we, we, our, um, our mutual friend Ethan Zuckerman, um, He's, uh, he's, like, he's the perfect example of that person who understands journalism, policy, and technology. There aren't that many of them, but they exist. Um, I'm Mitzi Worth. I'm with the Naval Postgraduate School, but I actually work in Washington, D.C. in a college. I, I'm like you. I never went to graduate school. I connect people and ideas. I've been told I'm an intellectual entrepreneur. One of the concerns I have with giving up print media, which seems to me has, I mean, I, I'm still angry at Warren Buffett when he talked 
Katie Graham into going public with the Washington Post because all of a sudden they had to write, to, they had to make sure that they got a 20% profit. And when the money comes in, all of a sudden that happens. One can argue that doesn't happen on the internet. But my question is, how do I know who to trust without spending <coughs> endless days in front of a computer reading through a lot of stuff which doesn't have any value when I have a, a more than overloaded life? But I think, and this question of trust, which is so key. I mean, you talked about how you had this trusted network. Were those all built over the internet, or did you actually know them face to face? So it's it's a combination. You know, I think that uh, the the great just, just not answer it directly, but to, I think they they all augment each other. So if you look at the um, the, the overthrow of the government in Egypt. And um, Mohammed Namabe, my friend, wrote his doing his thesis on this. It's very interesting. Is you you have the activists network, which are people trusting each other. You have Twitter, and then you have the uh, you have Al Jazeera. And every time Mubarak attacked one of them, when he sent the thugs into the streets to beat up the people, Al Jazeera and Twitter went crazy. And so the highest um, ratings for Al Jazeera that day were when the thugs were beating people in the street. And then when they shut down Al Jazeera, they blocked it. Twitter went crazy, and the activists went crazy, and everybody started to repeat it. And then when they went after Twitter and started posting fake tweets, Al Jazeera started um, rebroadcasting the fakes and stuff like that. And it isn't in isolation of anything. And so, so I, I think that you know, mainstream media will always play a role. I don't know whether it's in print or whatever, but there will be trusted platforms. And I think that the, ro the relationship between Twitter and Al Jazeera was really essential because um, Al, you know, Al Jazeera presents the final amplification to the public. But the people in the newsroom in Al Jazeera do spend the whole day sitting around trying to vet the sources. Um, it, it, and you can kind of turn the dial as much as you want. So I spent a lot of time during the um, Japan earthquake watching every single press release on my video, reading all the news streams, reading all of Twitter. And whenever I saw The Guardian or the BBC or somebody get it wrong, I'd email them and say, look, you got this wrong. Here's a clip from here. Here are all the Twitter streams. And I was a citizen fact checker for these newspapers. And I found several glaring mistakes that they've made. Right? So, so, but but, but when, I, when I, I just wrote an email to the New York Times this morning, you know, big, long email about why their article was wrong and vetting and vetted all my sources and sent it all in. And, and they can check all those, these sources. And so, I don't, I don't, so I wouldn't say that the mainstream, I don't think mainstream and professional media should go away and if you don't want to spend that time and you want to sit and read the press, that's, that's a valid way of, of, of consuming news. But I, I think that more and more young people find diving in and spending the time to try to figure out their own view, um, that number is increasing. Um, I'm, which article was it in the New York Times? A journalistic <laughs> question. <that> was <laughs> um, it, it was a very nuanced thing. So, so Hiroko Tabuchi wrote an article about um, um, some people um, taking some m measurements um, in Tokyo and finding hotspots. And right. um, I, I was critical about it just because I'm so focused on it right now. I think that the main story there um, was the way that the government wasn't publishing any of the data and that um, there, there, was, there were a lot of facts that she could have gotten. Um, I, but this, and this is exactly kind of the, the, the interesting thing about it, is when you print something, she can't then go back. It's done. You know, it's done. But I, I, I pointed to a bunch of different facts and a bunch of different data sources that could have added a lot more depth to the story. But I know that she was constrained in the, the time and constrained in the number of words she had. 
So it ended up being a lot less than it could be considering it was in the New York Times. And that, that's what's frustrating to me. Um, hi, so I'm, I'm Susan Crawford. So Joey, a lot of optimism about open, overcoming closed, um, but also a concern about uh, troglodyte antediluvian legislators and policymakers. So we're in an arms race. Clay says yesterday, uh, democracies are at great risk of closing down systems in order to, there's a lot of fear out there. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice? How do we speed up the process of getting policymakers mm -hmm. better informed? Is it just waiting for everybody to die off or is there something else that can happen? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. I think like attacking a policymaker's, not attacking policy, that sounds wrong. Attacking the problem of policymaker education is kind of doing it a little bit too frontal. I mean, Larry's trying to do it with Change Congress and things like that. I, I, I spent a lot of time in Japan doing that, you know, a decade on government committees and trying to you know, change things from the inside. I, I think that you build, this is the Silicon Valley way, you just build an alternative disruptive system and then, it, and then it grows, and then you can't ignore it anymore, rather than trying to steer something big. Um, and, but I do think that one key element gets back to, to your point, which is that every single decision that we make is political. And I think that Facebook forgets that we felt fought to keep each layer underneath them open, and that they only exist because we fought these battles to keep things open. And then as the layers start going up, to, to political free speech and, and copyright, we need to fight to make those open. And I think if we can create an open internet that goes all the way up, all the way up to the sort of political discussion layer, then it becomes a pillar of openness in open society that then, that then becomes something that legislature just can't ignore. You know, so you've got these kids running around on the streets right now with this um, Occupy Boston stuff. It's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, once you get the ability to cause collective action very quickly, for better or for worse, you're just not going to be able to ignore it. And, and then suddenly you, the legislature is going to have to say, okay, well, how do we deal with this crazy thing that's going on, this flash activism, which is going to be, and like, you, I don't know if you've heard those flash robberies, apparently, where everybody says, We're, let's rob the store, go, and then thousands of people show up and they can't stop them. You know? So there's definitely bad things that happen, but, but, but then it becomes a thing. And so then what, what do we do about that thing? And, um, and so, so to me, once you've got that happening on the outside, then you go up to the legislature. So, you know, I know these guys. How can I help you? You know, so it, it's, it's a lot more convincing that the future's going to be like this, you know. So, I, and, and again, I wouldn't encourage bad behavior, but I think like in the, with Arab, the Arab Spring, it's a lot easier now to talk to the dictators left standing and say, hey, you better change now that the other stuff has happened. So. I'm, I'm, remember, I'm remembering yeah. So uh, Jim Snyder, former Shorenstein Center Fellow and currently a network fellow at the Cypher Center where Larry Lessig is, uh, is, is running the shop. Uh, my question relates to uh, all the democratic reform organizations in the last half decade or so that are sort of copying uh, the media lab. They're sort of democratic reform media labs. And uh, how are they doing? Because uh, it's a following your model or, or, you know, exploratory. So we have, for example, uh, the Sunlight Foundation has their Sunlight Labs, Democratic Reform. The Software Center now has its lab for Democratic Reform in media. Uh, Knight Foundation, J-Lab, tries to do this stuff. Um, I have my gripes. One of the questions raised was the problem of having technologists that are policy informed. Most of these organizations take the policy framework actually as a given and try to mash up existing data generated by the current system. From my perspective, you know, crap in, crap out, and they've got all these 
fancy gadgets that I think the funders like, but I don't think often have a, a really deep impact because they're not getting at the core public policies. They're generating very poor information, and it's largely technology-driven. Um, so I, I would be curious about, I mean, the MIT Media Lab is real R&D and, and fundamentals. And I actually don't think these democracy labs have been dealing with fundamental issues to a large extent. I think it's quite largely gimmicky. What percentage, uh, uh, you know, your overall view of these labs, but also how successful should these projects that come out? If one out of ten is successful, is that, what is your benchmark for success? If you're doing real R&D, and this is supposed to be applied stuff, I think that the benchmark should probably be higher, but how, how do you, uh, should, how should you evaluate these labs as to whether they're generating, you know, the goods that they really should, because there's a lot of money now going into this, and increasingly so. Well, I think benchmarking is very difficult, um, especially if you're thinking somewhat long-term, mm -hmm. because the impact, um, there's so many different types of impact. Um, and I, I also think that metrics are kind of a slippery slope, too, because if you can measure it, it means you already know the answer. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you're trying to do is figure out what the answer. You're asking a question in which you don't know the answer. So, mm -hmm. so it's kind of this loop that you get in. Um, I think that uh, it's very important that um, it, it really depends on what you're trying to do. If, 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 you, if you're really tr trying to be so for the Media Lab, a key part of this is not building, but also it's being extremely interdisciplinary. So we have a, a Center for Civic Media, which another thing that Alberto funds of ours. Um, but uh, but what's, I think that that works because it's a, it's a bunch of people who are interested in journalism and civic action who are surrounded by everything from a wet lab working on you know, molecular gene sequencing to people making robots. And so they can pull on not just it's a very, very broad group of people, and it turns out that a lot of these things can be used in a really in interesting way, and it also stimulates a lot of thinking. Now, how we would measure the impact of that was, is, is very tricky, and, and I'm also a venture capitalist, is, was, was my day job. I'm stopped now, but in venture capital, the thing really is to bet on stuff that you really don't know. Like when we, when we invested in Twitter, I, you, could, you can ask every single investor in the early round of Twitter whether they thought Twitter was going to be their big thing, I would bet you none of them did. And um, we just thought Ev was a cool guy, you know, interesting thing, blogger was okay, let's, let's give it a try. And every once, it's like, if, if once, like a, for a venture capitalist, if once in every 10 years you get a Twitter or a Google, that's fine. And the average, so like if you had invested $30,000 in Facebook, it would be worth about two or $300 million today. And so the way that you measure the, impact or the success of a fund is not by <coughs> the average success of, over the portfolio, it's how many crazy wins do you get in every decade or every two decades. And so if you're doing a lab, you know, one of the things, is, and, and then it's also interesting, if you look at venture funds, the ones that are very successful, the investors don't question the partners. They just let them go and swing for the fences. And the funds that are unsuccessful, the partners have their investors, limited partners, breathing down their necks. And so they're afraid to take risks, so they take little bunts. And then getting two or three times your money on little investments doesn't work because you're paying these crazy people, not crazy, the, the, the VCs, a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars a year to make little tiny bets. So then it turns out it doesn't pay. And so what you want really is you want these guys to swing for the fences and not be measured on short-term things. So, so, and, so, so that's sort of how I think about sort of massive innovation, um, like scalable innovation. 
But it depends, again, on what, what, what you're trying to do. If you're trying to have short-term, reliable impact within the next few years, it's a little bit different from what we're doing at the Media Lab and what you would do at, at a venture fund. So, so I don't ask the kids, you know, what, 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 what is this going to do today? Because I mean, just to just give another example, there was a Yo-Yo Ma wanted a sensor on his bow to do some new weird instrument. So, so a student did that. And then somebody that did a magic show in, and this story I heard from Nicholas, so it wasn't me, but some magic show in, in, in Las Vegas wanted the sensor for the magic show. So apparently they sent students to Las Vegas, which was actually difficult to explain to MIT, to, to, to create this magic show. And, and then an NEC engineer came and said, that's exactly the sensor that we need to protect child seats from airbags. So now it's deployed in cars and airbags. And so this magic show, this, this musical instrument turned into a magic show that turned into airbag safety. And so the, the thing that's really critical about this is you can't, from the beginning, say, what is this going to do for me tomorrow? You kind of have to let the kids run around and do stuff that may, not, or may, or may or may not have re returns. The key, though, is to lower the cost of innovation, because you need to place hundreds of bets. And so you want to lower the approval. You want to lower the cost. You want to make it kind of scrappy. And you want to make each swing of the bat as low cost as possible if possible, free. And, and I think that's the only way you get that. It's my view, but I, maybe talking about different things. <laughs> you can take all four of these questions. We just started. Excellent. That's great, great news. Um, so I'll be going over here, and then over there, and then I think over there again, um, and then over there. Because <laughs> Oops. Hi, Alexis Skelber, former Shorenstein Fellow, uh, now teaching at NYU. Um, I wanted to go back to your uh, very uh, good point about journalists having to do math. And, um, and uh, as Emily is very uh, much involved in at Columbia, there's now a joint degree program between the Journalism School and the Columbia School of Engineering. Um, and while most journalists might, may not necessarily be good at math, I think there's a general enthusiasm for technology and engineering. But I wonder from your perch at N MIT whether you see that same level of interest among engineers in journalism. Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think that one of the really, that the things that convinced me that the Media Lab was where I wanted to be was that most of the things that these kids were interested in, these engineers, had nothing to do with engineering. They wanted to be social entrepreneurs, they wanted to be journalists, they wanted to be musicians. Some of them were professional musicians. And, and they were there because they wanted the right mm -hmm. to tinker with their tools. And they wanted the freedom of having their own tools. And to me, that's, that's, a, that's, 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 that's a fundamental thing. And so, so, it's, 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 so, so, so I think it's, it's that, that's, that's what I would say. And, and so the reason why I say that it's harder to teach journalists and business people to become um, technologists. I'm, that's not exactly precise. The journalists who go to J school and business people who go to business school tend to be the ones who are trying to be those professions assuming the tools they have right now are the tools they will be using. And then there's another category of slightly more disruptive, slightly less obedient mm -hmm. journalists and business people who feel like, I can't do what I want to do with the existing tools. I want to mess with those and then do what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's the category of people that I think are at the, at the Media Lab. Now, some people, like me, I didn't have those opportunities in life, and I may have been a different way if I had known. Because most people don't know that the Media Lab exists and that you could be a journalist and join the Media Lab. So, so what I'd like to do is take the DNA of the Media Lab and scale it. 
And so that we can take this kind of tinkering DNA and put it into J schools and put it into other places. Because no, we don't have a monopoly on it, and it would be great if more people did this. But it really comes from this very kind of, kind of questioning authority, questioning the idea that you're not allowed to tinker with your tools, and this sort of freedom to innovate. Mm -hmm. And I think that that hacking mentality is stifled because people try to pretend that software is in packages, that computers shouldn't be open that if you open your phone, it breaks the warranty. There's a bunch of stuff out there to protect the business models of those people who create the black boxes. And that's a very political thing. And it's about hacking. We use the word hacking in a negative word, but it's actually a very positive word. Hacking is about being allowed to break it open and, and, and modify the thing that you use. And, and so, 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 I'm sorry, that's a long-winded way of, of answering your question, but I, th I think we have a lot of just a, optimism. Just a quick personal note, if anybody out there knows disobedient journalists in the making and engineering schools, please send them to us at Columbia <laughs> because that's what, we, that's what we're trying to do with the program. Uh, hi, Seth Flaxman. I graduated from the Kennedy School this uh, past May and now run a startup that I incubated here at the Shorenstein Center. And um, you said two things today that are uh, pretty controversial around these parts, which is that planning is overrated and that we should try to answer questions uh, that we can't necessarily measure uh, impact for. Mm -hmm. And so the bulk of what I learned at the Kennedy School, actually, and the bulk of what the Kennedy School tries to teach is planning and measurement. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess my question is, what do you think the Kennedy School should try to teach? <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, so, so by the way, my, my, dean, my dean is the dean of... Um, architecture and planning, so, <laughs> so I hope she's not watching this, but um, no, I, I think maybe I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a terminology thing. I think traditional planning, um, structured planning where you assume you have all the variables um, is probably doesn't work necessarily now that we live in complex ecosystems that are high speed, complex, and actually open systems when they look closed. And so it's, it's, they're just, there's a high level of complexity. I think there's a whole new art of, and, I, and, and you can call it planning if you wanted to. I mean, I think it's, it, you could stretch the word planning or you could come up with a new word. But the, the way that I, I think about it is you, you, you plan trajectories, but you have to retain agility. So, so, so let, let, me, let me use a, a computer um, develop, software development metaphor. So in the old days or in, in old companies, you plan what you want the thing to look like, and then you spend a year or two developing the thing, and this is called waterfall, and then you, you test it for quality, and then you maintain it. Um, in Agile, what you do is you say, okay, here are the rough things we want to do, here are the short-term requirements, but every single week, you review the requirements, change the course, and you keep going, and it's tricky because in a big company, the CEO says, well, what is this thing going to look like when it's done? And you say, I don't know. But it will be better each week. And it will be heading in the trajectory of what our customer and our company wants it to do. And if you have the confidence, what you do is that, say, that's fine. Every single week, it's going to head in a direction that's generally meets my compass needle. But if we find a little tree here, we'll go around it. If Twitter suddenly happens and it turns out that that's a much better path, we'll go that way. And so that's planning, and it's a, it's a process and a trajectory of where you want to go, but you don't, you don't have a map. And the problem is if you ha do a map and suddenly, boom, a big mountain falls in front of you, like um, you know, the internet, but you plan as if it weren't there, then you've got to tunnel through this thing, right? And so, so it's, it's really, 
so, 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 so the, what, what, what is the policy equivalent of that? I think there is a policy equivalent of that, which is what are our core values? What are we trying to achieve? You, you, you set up the mission, but you don't sit there and start drafting the specifications of the legislation or the policy based on every single problem that you can anticipate. You create a little version of that, you test it, and then you modify it and you move, and you modify it and you move. This is the, the Internet um, Engineering Task Force says rough consensus running code. Sometimes you get it wrong. You didn't we didn't anticipate spam. We didn't anticipate we'd run out of IP addresses. But we kind of evolved our way through it as we got to those those those, those problems. So I think there's a there's a um, so what I would say focus more on process and a little less on trying to figure everything out before you try something um, and a little less on studying um, and again the historians are going to hate me for this but studying cases and a little bit more on studying what's going on right now. Um, I think it's, you can't be either or, but, but I find that cases tend to be the study of business, um, whereas entrepreneurship is the act of business. And there's, you know, it, it, there's a role for both of them, but, um, but I'm not sure if I'm answering. But, but I, so, so focus more on process and a little less on, on study is what I would say. Hi, I'm Marvin Kalb, and um, you spoke a moment ago about basic core values, and that prompts my standing up to ask you this question. Um, I worry about basic core values of journalism because they are they they appear to be shifting today, and people who have been at it for a long time are not quite sure any longer what a journalist is. And I feel listening to you and other people like you, and I do that with great respect and with an awareness of my limitation, <laughs> believe me. But I feel like somebody on a lonely train station watching a rapid train leaving. And I'm the journalist watching this technology in high flight, uh, being pursued by a lot of very eager, bright people, um, more fascinated, and understandably so, by what it is that you're all doing, by the technology itself. But I'm mindful of a quote from Ed Murrow in a speech in Chicago in 1958, when he spoke about the new technology of the moment, and that was television. Mm -hmm. And he said that television is marvelous, and in the hands of good people, dedicated to good purpose, it can educate, and he said, even enlighten and illuminate. Otherwise, he said, it's just lights and wires in a box. So my concern is um, how do you connect the new technology with all of the promise inherent in it with basic core values of journalism mm -hmm. without which the technology may be wonderful for other things but in bad hands, mm -hmm. again, it's just wires and lights in a box. How do you move forward without losing the core values of journalism? So I think that the core values of journalism are very similar to values of a number of different communities on the internet that may not necessarily call themselves journalists. So for instance, the Wikipedia community has this <laughs> ideal of neutral point of view, and they obsess about it to um, some almost an insane level. And so, in fact, if you go to the discussion page of any Wikipedia article where they're arguing about the validity of this source over the validity of that source and how, much, how many words should be used to describe this or that, you will find a, a value structure very 
similar to that you, you might find in a newsroom. And in fact, since they have almost infinite time, they, the conversations are much longer. Um, and so there are communities like that. Um, the problem is whether those communities have, how much influence those communities have. I would argue Wikipedia has a tremendous amount of influence right now. Um, and it's continuing generally to get better. And I would also argue that, so the, the, the other thing is that I'm not, try, I, I'm not being necessarily normative about this. I'm just pointing out what's <coughs> happening. So I see the train leaving and all this other, these other things. I would also argue that this platform you're on is kind of sinking. So you're having companies buy newspapers and television channels who used to have primarily journalist values at heart, now being treated as content, mm -hmm. having ratings at heart. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that people who have core journalist values really don't have anywhere to go or have fewer and fewer places where they can exercise those values. And, and, pe and journalists are being laid off in droves. And so then the question for me is, well, where do we put these people? And where do they go? And how do they exercise those values? So, so I, I personally adhere to the values of, 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 of journalists. I, when, when, when I talk to, and not just in journalism, but just in my day-to-day -day life, whether it's, it's fact-checking, whether it's trying to be neutral, whether it's trying to be balanced and fair, and, all, and, and, and whenever I try to write anything, I, 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 I do that. So, and, and there, so, so I, I guess my, my, my point is that I don't think newspapers and television and, the, and journalism schools have a monopoly on the values that you would call journalist values and that the trick is really to see how we can amplify those values in the communities of people on Twitter and other places. And, and I would also argue that uh, the, 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 the damage created by those institutions that call themselves news agencies that have lost those values have a lot more damage because they have the authority of the name, but they don't have the values anymore. Whereas the people on the internet, even if they have those values, you're still going to read two or three sources and check them. And, and so this, the young kids today, or at least the smart ones, know that they, you're not supposed to believe everything you read on the internet, and you're supposed to triangulate, and you yourself start to become a little bit more of a journalist, rather than just um, blindly, maybe not blindly, but, 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 but trusting these authorities. And I think, the, and I think there's going to be a generation thing, because I think the whole notion of authority is changing in the minds of young people. And I think it's a kind of literacy. So a lot of people argue that Wikipedia, that there could be factual errors. But any really smart kid who's trying to figure out something, they go to Wikipedia and they look at all the sources. And they read all the sources. And they read the discussion on the Wikipedia page. And then they see all the sides of the argument. And they come up with a, a much more sort of um, a much broader view of the argument than just the completed newspaper article about it. But I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, 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 so I, I guess just to, to reiterate, I think that w even if you're just in chat rooms on the internet and you listen to the dialogue, if they're relatively sophisticated chat rooms, people will always be, I mean, if you say something and it turns out to be wrong, you get pummeled, whether it's on a blog or whether it's in a chat room, and you won't do it again. You start to become very careful. And again, this rigor doesn't exist everywhere, but there's pockets of it. And I think that that will grow. OK, thank you. So uh, <clears throat> I think I'm actually going to ask Marvin's question from a different perspective. Uh, my name's Nico, and I actually started my life writing code and teach technology here at the Shorenstein Center. And um, you know, I heard you earlier saying something you know, roughly akin to to kind of butcher a famous quote, 
the arc of history is long, but it tends towards openness, right? But uh, I'm a little concerned that openness isn't justice. And the, um, the technologies we have, they're, they're very profoundly about empowering individuals. You said at the beginning that, you know, if I'm going to kind of paraphrase you, everything of consequence on the Internet was started by two or three people. And I'm just wondering about the, uh, I think when Marvin talks about values, what he's concerned about is the role institutions have played in enforcing kind of important values of democracy. And even though I am a kind of very cold, serious technologist, I recognize that the values that the technology is designed on are not the same ones as democracy, right? They're not about rule of law. They're not about holding power accountable necessarily. And so I'm just wondering about that, that tension between the very nature of the technology which empowers individuals, I would argue, at the significant expense of institutions, at the same time, many of our institutions are corrupt and I kind of think deserve to die to some extent. But I am worried about what gets lost in that equation and uh, the kinds of values institutions are good at carrying, uh, like, for example, justice. So again, I, I, this may sound like a determinist statement, but I think you can't really put the genie back in the bottle in some ways. So we have WikiLeaks, it is and it will continue to have things like WikiLeaks. And so just purely kind of from a, uh, the trend is that institutions are going to be forced to be open. And I, I, I use the term um, transparency robustness. There are a lot of great institutions who cut corners inside because they never thought you'd be able uh, If you look at open source software, if you're a technology guy, you know if you're going to create an open source project, you've got to create an open source from the beginning. Otherwise, people put swear words as variables, they don't document it and become spaghetti and it's so embarrassing you can't open it even if it works. <laughs> That's the state of most of our institutions today where you do things because you assume people aren't going to see it and even the greatest institutions with great impact I don't think are robust under transparency and this is, I'm not saying it's a good thing, this is a thing. This is going to happen, we're going to go through a tremendous amount of pain as we open up these institutions, I think. And then the new institutions, the lucky thing is if you're designing an institution from scratch today, you have to really keep in mind that I was, I was with, well, sorry, I won't tell, well, I will tell the story. I was with John Markoff yesterday and he was interviewing me and I said, well, you know, John, can I tell you something off the record? Just, just remember everything you say may end up in the New York Times, you know. <laughs> but, but, but like, I think, you, <laughs> but I, I, think, I think you have to assume that everything you're doing is gonna be open. <laughs> The, the thing is, you can create institutions that way if you do design them from scratch. It's hard to transform them. So I think there's going to be a lot of really real damage. Um, but to get back to openness, I think that fundamentally, though, if we can, that, because technology in, until recently has really been focused on creating these institutions that have power and protecting their, their secrecy, and then taking the individuals and destroying their privacy. That's just been the way, because that's, you know, the power does that. And I think it's finally the DNA of the internet, the sort of people being a little bit more aware that technology is being used to do the reverse, which I think is important, that those in power should be forced to be transparent. And individuals require privacy in order to be able to, um, so, 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 so that I don't, I'm not ever addressing justice directly, but you need to be able to question authority without fear of retribution, and you need to be able to dissent 
without being crushed immediately. Otherwise, you can't have democracy. So, uh, so one of my developers in Syria was just shot. You know, and all of his guys are being thrown in jail and beaten every day. And in those societies, and, and what, what are they using? They're using Facebook. They're using, the, you know, they took his Gmail password. They took his Facebook password, rounded up his friends. You know, all this technology is being used primarily in those sorts of places to stifle dissent. And you can't have democracy when you can't have a couple of people get together and say, you know, I don't really like this president, boom, right? That doesn't, that doesn't work, that's not a democracy. So I think the privacy is essential in, in democracy and with the technology we have today, you can no longer have privacy. And to, to put it a little bit more in a different level is that in the US or in certain countries, you may trust your institutions, but every policy decision around technology that we make in the US affects the rest of the world. And I don't trust the regimes of the majority of countries in the rest of the world. And so if you're thinking about free and open society from a global perspective, you really, really need to allow people to attack their institutions, whether verbally or otherwise. And so, so I think that, that, that that's a fundamental architecture decision that we need to make. Um, and, to, and, and, and for justice, you know, so I'm not sure exactly what your definition of justice is. And you might want to clarify. Well, actually, I, I, would, I would just say that you, you, you kind of touch on a little bit in the beginning of the answer when you're talking about, well, we just need to build some new institutions, right? And that, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. But trying to figure out, I, I guess I, I, I'm struggling to figure out where, how and where and what kinds of thinking is required to yeah. take the values of the technology and bring them to the values of, you know. The and, and, and I think part of this will happen by it happening in other countries without those institutions. So. I'm not sure whether it's going to happen in Egypt, but you know, what yesterday was, was, was hopeful. But you have these countries now that are overthrowing their governments, lots of young people that are technology empowered. They may not get it completely right at the beginning, but they're testing a lot of things. I was just in Tunisia and listening to an argument around censorship. And the level of the discussion, it felt like I was in the Berkman Center, not in, you know, not in, a, in a discussion in, in some, the, 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 the quality of the discussion and the debate around censorship and the nuance, because they were basically arguing that um, against the law, they were, they were arguing against the law that was banning child pornography. And it was very, very nuanced, because these, 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 these lawyers were saying, no, if you start doing that, it breaks this whole idea of the, the power of the, the role of the legislature versus the judiciary, and the judiciary shouldn't be doing this and doing that. And they were, they were, they were talking like you know, constitutional law professors in trying to attack this law, and, you had, and, and they understood the technology. So, so I could see in some of these countries seeing some model institutions develop in the oddest places. And then that, just like the Arab Spring kind of spread, it might be interesting to see, and I think you'll find it in local governments, because like in the US, you find a lot of really interesting innovation going on in local governments. So I think kind of piloting interesting new transparent institutions, and then having people say, hey, why don't you guys do that, rather than trying to change the institution. I know, this is an idea. Very much the last one. Good. I'm bringing greetings from the West Coast, uh, and from the years of having debated some of these issues with the members of Asahi Shimbun and people like that. We were headquartered with the AP back in those days. And it was a tough, a tough argument then. I also want to clarify the fact that though I follow Marvin Kell, we, we have experience going back a long time, since 1956, when we slept in the same bed in Jakarta, Indonesia. And with his brother Bernie, <laughs> we raced up the highway to interview Sukarno about his trip to Russia and China and the United States. 
I the questions I have are based on the fact that I, I wonder whether or not the new media is consumed only with how to communicate rather than what to communicate. And I think that I, one of the things that I, I found here in the last two days, I think it was a great conference, and many of the people were very intelligent, thoughtful, so on. But I didn't hear Afghanistan mentioned at all. I didn't hear the problems of colonialism, the problems that journalists work at all the time and can't come up with the real answers. We struggle with it. I've had 56 years in journalism, came from the USC Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, and many years in the Associated Press and then CBS News. And uh, we don't have an answer for many of these things. And I just don't know how we're going to deal with these problems. Because one of the problems, I think, of the old media, my old media, is who's in, who's in control of it, who owns it. And it's largely corporate ownership, which really has no sense of what journalism should be doing and how it should serve the people and the country as a whole. Um, so I think that uh, I leave today troubled by the fact that I haven't got an answer for this. And I know that hearing you, hearing both speakers has been marvelous, but at the same time I think we're really, we're struggling. It's a great struggle. I don't know how soon we can really resolve it. But we shouldn't lose track of the fact that there are young people coming into the schools of journalism who don't have much sense or education about the problems out there in the rest of the world. I went to Afghanistan in 1957 and interviewed after having been survived an attack in Pakistan at the Khyber Pass, where I was invited to go by Abe Rosenthal. And I went to the American Embassy there and I met the political officer there. And he said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'd like to know about Afghanistan. Tell me, this is a, a kingdom, right? Yes. And how much aid do, does the United States give Afghanistan? He said, oh, about $50 million a year, $1957. I said, what's it for? He said, nation building. Now, lo and behold, where have we heard that most recently? We're, we're going to have to have a question here. So I think your question was, was how do we answer this question? I mean, I just with well, respect, I, with respect one is, thing I would say is that 40% of the people who now come to Columbia, and I'm sure the same is true of many, yeah. many J schools, actually do come from outside the U.S. and probably know a great deal about, more about their home markets. Which okay, well, the only question really is, yes, how, do you how do you meld yeah. the skills of a journalist, which you've had, with the new media that's on the, on the horizon and taking much more prominence. I, I would definitely suggest you look at um, Ethan Zuckerman's work at the Center for Civic Media because the reason he, he got into it was he was in Africa and realized that no one wrote or cared about Africa. And then I've talked to a number of, of professional journalists and asked them, why aren't you writing more about this? Why aren't you writing more about that? And to your point, it's a company now, and if it doesn't sell newspapers, doesn't sell magazines, they can't write about it. So it's just reinforcing systemic biases. In the old days, the journalists were looked to as people who would tell you what you should be reading, not providing what you want to read. And there's a whole body of work in the technology field, and, and Ethan's working on this, I'm working on this, is how do you prevent the reinforcement of systemic biases? I believe, so, so I'm on the board of an organization called Global Voices, and it's about getting people to blog and make content and teaching you know, kids in the slums of Colombia to make videos about themselves. Because I, I, I call it the caring problem. If you don't care, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you know if you don't care. And if you don't care, you don't read about it. And the way you get people to care is you connect them. And so one thing that's new is that the journalist 
is, uh, is a proxy for what's going on. It, it turns out that if you have the person there, the kid in Colombia, and you see the video, you start to care. And when you connect citizens together, you start to care. So to me, providing voice at the edges of our network actually starts to solve this caring problem. So in the old days, what you do is you have an authority that says, you must care about Afghanistan, and then you would care. Now you can't do that. What you need to do is get the kid from Afghanistan to come to uh, a conference here and say, hey, care about me, read my blog, connect with me. And so, so to me, it's empowering those voices. And, and really silly things, like I, I have a World of Warcraft guild, and we play video games together, and I have, I have soldiers deployed in, in, in Afghanistan, and I have these kids from the Middle East, and we sit around and we talk, and then finally I, I, I start seeing these kids caring, and these kids are now flying all over the world to meet each other. So there's a bunch of different ways for these kids to connect with each other. And once they care, I start sending links in our, our, in our World of Warcraft forums to things going on in Syria, and they say, is that, is that where that kid lives? And, and they start to care. And so to me, a lot of this is about connecting these communities. And then you can feed that back into mainstream media, because if the kids start caring about what's going on in these countries, they'll start buying media about it. So to me, it's, it's a caring problem. Listen, this was terrific. Emily, Joe, thank you very, very much.